This is the We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. There's a storm inside of us, a burning river, a drive you push yourself further than anyone could think possible. You are never out of the fight. Marcus Luttrell. Welcome to another episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is Steve Brown. How are you? I'm doing well, and thank you for having me on here, Tina. You are welcome. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. We have a mutual friend, Matthew Bradford, who was on the podcast a few years ago, and he has continued to send people my way, and I really appreciate it. And Steve comes with high recommendations, so I'm sure he will not disappoint. I hope not. (laughs) I'm sure you won't. I always like to start at the beginning. Can you start us off with your story? Where does your story begin? Uh, well, I guess the military and myself have been kind of hand in hand since I was born. I was born in Heidelberg, Germany. My dad was in the military. He was in the army uh, during the Vietnam era and uh, moved back to his hometown area in southwestern Michigan where I grew up and uh, just kind of had a, I guess, normal in my mind childhood uh you know bb gun wars with my friends and running around the woods and probably doing things that in this day and age people would really say that it's too dangerous and you're gonna shoot your eye out kid or something like that and just kind of started that way um my family's had a history in the military Uh, my great-grandfather served in world war one as a merchant marine and then both of my grandfathers were in World War II. One was in the Army in the European Theater. The other one was in the Navy in the Pacific Theater. And then, of course, you heard of my dad. My uh, grandfather's brothers who were on my dad's side, one was in Korea, one was also in Vietnam. And so there's kind of just been ever since I was growing up, you know, seeing their uniforms, uh, my grandmother, she retailored some of my grandfather's Navy uniforms to fit my little brother and myself probably when we were, I don't know, six and three or so. And uh, just looking back at pictures like that and, you know, just thinking of all the running around the woods and fishing on my other grandfather's ponds and using a BB gun to shoot at turtle heads while I'm fishing and also to defend myself from the geese that were on the pond. (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of no wonder why I ended up where I ended. Was the military something that you always wanted to join or what was that change that came for you? When did that enter your mind? <laughs> I would say it's something that I always wanted to join. I can remember back in early elementary school going to like a flea market with my grandmother and totally drawn to the World War II you know, web gear and helmets and all that kind of stuff, like bayonets and knives that uh, troops carried back then. And, you know, I seemed to come home with something from there. And and then that would lead into when I was, when we were doing BB gun wars, that was the kit I would wear. 
And uh, so it just kind of from a long time back, uh, it was kind of what I wanted to do. I mean, it changed as far as what I, what service I wanted to go into. At first it was going into the army, then it went switched over to the Marines and then it switched back to the army, you know, to try to go into like the Green Beret type of things. And then I found out about the SEAL teams and, and that's kind of where I finally, I found out about them in high school and that's kind of where I left it at. Uh, I was a competitive swimmer uh, through high school and then ended up receiving a scholarship for swimming and went and did that before going in the Navy because I figured after I got out of the Navy, I don't think that scholarship's going to be there for me. So I figured I better use it while I can. And uh, so as soon as I was done swimming in college and uh, went down the recruiter's office with my best friend at the time, and we uh, enlisted in the buddy program and both went to boot camp together. And then we went to buds together and both made it through training and we both went to different field teams, but yeah, it was pretty cool. You joined then the Navy with the intention of becoming a Navy SEAL. Would you have settled for anything less than that? No, not in the Navy. Uh, I would have probably, had I known about what the Air Force does as far as PJs uh, and CCTs, that might have been something I would have been interested in. But I, at the time, I didn't know about them. It wasn't like today where you have information at your fingertips where you can just Google something. Back then, it was like you had to go to a recruiter and actually ask them about it or you'd hear about it in, in the news maybe or something like that, but they're or in the encyclopedia, if anybody knows what those are anymore. So uh, as far as the Navy goes, no, that was, that was going to be it. There wasn't going to be any other option for me. What year was this that you joined the Navy? It was 1994. 1994. And with your journey to become a Navy SEAL, what was the toughest part for you? Don't tell me it was easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I can say it wasn't easy. Uh, but what I, what I did do as far as when I started training in BUDS, I just, I never looked at, at the whole of training. I looked at it like day to day, meal to meal. So you could break it down into a much smaller increments than saying, oh my God, I'm going to be here for six months being wet and sandy and being beaten every day. And this is going to be the worst part of my life. And instead you just break it down to, Oh, this is going to be like three hours. It's going to be terrible, but then I get to go eat. So that was kind of how I had my mindset going into it. And even with hell week, you know, they're feeding you every eight hours. You may not be in a chow hall, but you at least get to stop for a minute and eat something, you know, before you're going again. Uh, so I don't know. I just tried to break it down into more little micro steps as opposed to like, holy cow, we're breaking out on Sunday and this doesn't get done until Friday. Well, what is the attrition it, rate? Do you know? It's always been 75, 80% around wow. there. And they've even done things while I was active duty. And it's the right direction of trying to find the right candidate. So there's a task called the C-sorts, which is a physical test and a psychological aptitude test and they take your score combined score and then they put it into a quad chart and if you're in the bottom left top left or top right so you can go to buds but if you finish in that bottom right corner like you're not even allowed to go because like at the time they they studied this for like 10 years and at the time they didn't have anybody ever complete buds from that quadrant 
Wow. Now, I don't know why. Obviously, there's quitters in the other three, but they had that's where the successes were as well. So they tried to curb that attrition rate, but it's still, as far as I know, still up there like that 75%, 80%. Did you lose hair and nails? Toenails, yeah. Uh, yeah, everybody, I think everybody lost some hair because uh, especially during like hell week, you're just wet and sandy the whole time. You're losing skin. I mean, you're losing everything. Uh, so you're, you have sand all over you and your hair and your scalp and you're always running around with a boat on your head with your boat crew. So the boat's just bouncing on your head, which is grinding the sand, which is acting kind of like sandpaper, just, you know, basically sanding away your scalp and, and, and your clothing is sanding away at, you know, your thighs, inner thighs, your arms, where your arms and your torsos meeting. Uh, it's just, you just look, by the end of the week, you're a mess. You just look like you basically ran through a, a stander and have lost like that first couple layers of skin where it just looks like you're going to start tossing out blood all over the place. Were you able to uh, maintain your physical health through the whole thing? Because one of the people that I spoke with, uh, Jeff Gum, and he got really sick. And I'm right. wondering, were you able to stay healthy during that? Because that's that's a real bummer when you get so far and then you get really sick and you have to start over. Yeah, no, not so far as like illness, but I did have some physical injuries. So uh, right before Hell Week, we got done with a four-mile timed beach run. And I had like this lower leg injury. I don't know what it was, but it was killing me. Like I was basically held on to one of my teammates or my classmates and – was kind of like we were doing our cool down from the run and I'm like man this is Friday this is not good going into Sunday and uh so I had that and then during hell week um it was like Thursday I started throwing up blood and so I wasn't gonna say anything about it because I didn't realize like depending on how far along you are in the evolution you know they might just roll you forward, but I was like, I'm not going to take a chance on getting rolled backwards. So we were doing like sprints on the beach and one of the instructors saw blood and was now the class was going to get hammered if somebody didn't fess up to who it was. So I told him that was me and asked me when it started. And I, I was like, I don't know, a few hours ago, I, it could have been the day before. I don't remember, but uh, so they sent me to medical. They had me, you know, you stripped down out of all your, your uniform that you're in and you leave it outside so you don't get the medical room all messy and I get in there and it's super warm in there and so I'm in there for like an hour and they they're just checking me out and checking me for dehydration and stuff like that and and I wasn't popping up or throwing up any more blood and they're like you want to join your class and I'm like who yeah and so I was like go back outside put on these wet nasty sandy greens and get back to my class and at the time, they were on their way down to the demo pit Friday morning, and uh, I just remember I was our number one guy on our right side of the boat, our starboard side, and I looked over at the number one guy on the left side, and he just looked at me. He's like, you all right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm good to go. Let's go. And uh, so we finished out, and then uh, we got secured, and then uh, it was weird. Like, the leg injury didn't bother me at all. I don't know if it was from adrenaline, but that Monday, we got back in as a class, and I couldn't, I couldn't run. I could hardly walk. Uh, so I got rolled because of that lower leg injury. They said it was a stress fracture, so I had to wait, I don't know, till the next class, which was two months later, and then I classed back up with them. And then while I was with that class in third phase, I was kind of slipping on this obstacle called Dirty Name. It's these 
it's a log that you jump up to a higher log and then to a third higher log. And I was on the second log going to the third one and I started slipping, but I jumped anyways and I just drilled myself in the rib. And, uh, and that, that injury, <laughs> that was some fractured ribs. And, uh, but again, you know, it's like, I'm not going to get rolled. I'll just like ace bandage up my, my ribs super tight, like every day before going into class. And so I only know I had a few more weeks left and I wasn't going to, take the chance of getting rolled or anything like that. It just, you know, play injured. That's just what you learn to do all the time. <laughs> what sets Navy SEALs apart is that mental fortitude. Have you always had that mental fortitude? Because like you said, the attrition rate is really high and most people are like, screw this. I am out of here. So what is that mental right. fortitude? Have you always had it or is that something that you developed? I think I kind of had it even going into college swimming. So I was on spring break when I was in high school. My One of uh, my teammates were in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona from Michigan, you know, enjoying some warmer weather. And he and I decided to go to Tempe and we climbed a mountain, which looks down the Mona Plummer Aquatic Center. It also looks at Sun Devil Stadium. And I was like, man, that pool is amazing. It'd be so awesome to be on the swim team here someday. And he was like, you'll never be fast enough. And so I just took that as like, well, I'm going to be here someday. And uh, so I got my scholarship to the junior college down in Fort Lauderdale because I didn't start swimming competitively until I was a sophomore in high school. And uh, so I got down there and just started swimming. And my coach changed me from swimming freestyle to breaststroke. So now I'm swimming a whole new stroke, starting all over, basically. And uh, made it to nationals my sophomore year. And I did okay. It wasn't as good as I wanted to do. Uh, and But I started going on all these recruiting trips all over SEC and, you know, even to, like, Notre Dame back up where I was from. And uh, my coach was like, well, what are you deciding to do? And I'm like, I want you to call the coach out at Arizona State and tell him I want to come swim for him. And he was like, why do you want to swim there so bad? And I'm like, I don't know. I just always wanted to. I wasn't going to tell my story. I was like, I just want to swim out there. I, it's a, it's a, I mean, they're always in the top 10 in the nation. I mean, you got swimmers from all over the world on that team from their nationals, their national team and their Olympic team. So it was like, it was a really fast team. And told him what I wanted to do. And he's like, all right, I'll call him. So he called him up and the coach out there was like, well, he's not fast enough for what I'm looking for, but if he comes out here and he swims on my master's team and then he becomes fast enough, then, you know, we'll talk about finding a spot on the team. So I went out there and swam for him for a year. And then one day at the end of practice, he's like, you still want to swim for the team? And I'm like, hell yeah, dude. So he's like, all right, let's get you ready to go. And I'm like, roger that, man. So, uh, so yeah, so that was kind of like, I don't know. So it's always been kind of like that. People tell me that I couldn't do something. And I was like, well, I'll show you. I can do whatever I set my mind to. And, uh, you know, Budge was no different. It was, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to make it through. But quitting just wasn't going to be in my vocabulary, along with most guys that make it through. It's like, you're going to have to drown me or kill me before those words come out of my mouth and I go ring the bell. There's just no way it's going to happen. Jay Redmond told me that there is the no quit gene. And that's what you guys have. For some reason, you're born with that no quit gene. <laughs> yeah, that could, that's a good word for it that Jay came up coined there. You know, definitely. Our fire in the gut guys, like our dudes that were just like big guys that were like played football in college. And, you know, at the end of the four mile time to run, they're not even close to making the time. And they would just get hammered for like the next hour on the beach after every run. And those dudes are there every day. It was like they would come off the beach, go right into whatever our next evolution was. And those dudes, I mean, 
the fire in their gut, you know, just their determination not to quit. Cause it'd be so easy for some people to get all that special added attention, you know, to just decide, all right, this, this isn't for me. But I mean, if you want it bad enough, you're going to figure out how to get your mind and your body through it. Was there ever a point, even like a millimeter of a second <laughs> during buds that you said, Hmm, maybe I better rethink this. Nope. Not even when uh, I was watching like the toughest dudes in our class. Like we had a pro triathlete. We had a couple other dudes, like just total studs. We were in this thing called a beehive uh, out in the bay. So it's where the, you have to like tread water super close to each other. So you're almost kind of climbing on top of each other, pushing each other underwater, like trying to keep your head above water. Those dudes, drop, they just drop like flies during that evolution. And I was just like, man, I thought for sure all those guys would make it through. But never in my mind did I think, well, because they quit, I'm going to quit. That wasn't the case, but you did see that happen. And the instructors saw that happen. They actually paused the evolution for a minute and, like, kind of consult, brought everybody together. And they would just try to, like, motivate everybody, like, hey, look, just because those guys quit doesn't mean you can't make it. Because they were starting to see that. It was just, like, one guy after another. And, and that was an evolution where they might have a couple guys quit on. Because they pretty much know each evolution about how many guys are probably going to quit. So when you go beyond that number, then it's kind of like, whoa, we need to uh, pull the reins back a little bit and kind of figure out what's going on here. I think there are many misconceptions about seals. And number one is the size. Do you think that's a misconception? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think most people think we're 6'4 to 6'6 six, six, and like 225 to 275 rip. Um, that's definitely not the case. I think I might be a, a, about five foot ten is probably about our average height. I would say five ten, five eleven, which is kind of right where I fall in. And uh, you know, I weighed, weighed back then probably about one ninety or so. So we're not real big guys, but you know, then you put our kid on us and we get a little bit bigger and heavier. But uh, yeah, we're not these stormtroopers that you'd hear about. You know, just gigantic dudes that are we're we're normal we're athletic you know that's kind of how we're built you know you get some guys that get in the whole not so much bodybuilding but just lifting a lot more than other guys and you know they'll get big and then it's like here you can carry some extra weight because you're so much bigger <laughs> so, and uh but yeah for the most part everybody's got kind of just that athletic like build how many that, are there yeah. of you retired and active that's a good question too. Uh, I know active duty wise, we keep the floor somewhere around 2,300 plus or minus. Um, retired and guys that have gotten out over the years. I mean, you still read about guys that were around during the scouts and Raiders days in world war two. So definitely the Korean era, there's still some there for sure. There's a lot of Vietnam guys still around. Oh, that'd be a hard number to pin. Uh, I don't know, maybe 20 some thousand, maybe. The brief history that you've had, it is a small elite group to be a part of. It definitely is. Uh, I got, someone was talking to me one time about a team guy and that he was a total narcissist. And I was just like, if you look at the numbers, like there's 2,300 active duty. That's 
one one millionth of a percent of our population. It's less than there are doctors. It's less than there are a lot of things. The only thing that there's not less of is maybe like the president's only one, the vice president's only one, Congress, you know, the Senate and House. Uh, if you look at it in the big picture, we're a very small group within our population. And if that guy was a bit narcissistic about his career, well, I don't know, maybe he's earned that a little bit to do that. Uh, I think most most team guys are humble. You wouldn't you'd be absolutely surprised if you were talking to one uh, and then somehow it came up that they were one that you'd more than most people are pretty surprised about that. I do think it's, it's good sometimes and maybe not all the time with a lot of guys that are out there and, and they are doing books and they are doing movies. And they are doing things and it brings attention to what we're doing. Cause I mean, as far as a recruiting tool, I think that's huge. Uh, and, and, Everybody's been, from what I've seen, smart about what they talk about. And if they're talking about an op, how it went down, they don't get too much into tactics. They just, so as far as the stuff that we do when we're overseas doing our job, uh, we're not letting out too many trade secrets about how those are being done. What makes the Navy SEALs different? Because when I was speaking with Jay Redman and he spoke about some of he's he's quite honest about some of the failures that he had as a navy seal leader and how he had to go to um ranger school <laughs> kind of i don't know as a punishment or whatever you call yeah. it i don't know but he spoke to me about how you know the ranger school was great but it still isn't the navy seal level what makes you guys different Well, as far as, I mean, just training, just as far as the numbers, I mean, you can just look at throughput to like whether it's the Q course or the Green Berets or Ranger School or really the only ones that have a smaller number going through are PJs and CCTs in the Air Force. Um, I think one of our training is longer. I think the physical level, it's, it's more difficult than the other branches i mean it would have been nice to have gone through some of those other qualification courses just to really be able to say hey this is what's different this is what's not but when you talk to people that have like jay or other guys that were in the teams that went to ranger school and they're just like yeah man it was awesome well <laughs> all right so if it was awesome then uh probably i mean back in the day they were doing like the one mre meal a day that was probably the toughest thing for him well at least the guys i've talked to was the lack of food because we're used to feeding ourselves like every eight hours and they're used to having one meal so that to me would probably be the most difficult and challenging <laughs> thing to go to especially since i was basing my day off of my meal time so then i'd have to figure out something else to base it off of i don't know what that would be but uh because no matter how bad things are at least you get to eat in eight hours right <laughs> that's right exactly <laughs> And they, you might be getting sand thrown at you and into your food, but you're at least not in the water. You know, you're not rolling in sand at the time. Yeah. But you got to keep those thoroughbreds fed. <laughs> you do. You do. Because if, if you're not new, replenishing that nutrition, you're going to have guys actually just start breaking down and falling off, you know, at a higher rate than what they are already. But uh, I would, I would say that um, there's, because Q course where the 
Green Berets, I've heard it's pretty tough. Um, oh, it's a little bit different. I mean, when you're wet and sandy all day long and that water is 60-some degrees that you're in all day, yeah, I would, you know, there's, it just kind of sets people aside. And when I've talked to, like, you got buddies that are Green Berets out here, uh, they're just like, there's no way I could do that water thing. There's like, no way. You get out of Navy SEALs and where do you go from there? So you've, 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 you're now a Navy SEAL. Where are you stationed? Yeah. So once you get done with BUD, you actually go through, there's a whole bunch more training you, you go through before you even get to your first team. And that's, you know, another six, nine months um, going through that. Uh, the command that I was a senior enlisted advisor for up in Alaska, we were actually part of that pipeline. And we would have our students up there for four weeks and, you know, introduce them to mountaineering, uh, primitive living, avalanche awareness, like cold weather fitness and nutrition and that kind of thing. So, now, Steve, I have to stop you. Motors. Is this your big, All long right. title? <laughs> the one about Naval Special Warfare Basic Training uh, well, this, Kodiak, I've, Alaska. I've got senior enlisted advisor at Naval Special Warfare Basic Training Command Detachment, Kodiak. <laughs> yeah, that, that's it. I was going to put wow, that. Wow, that's a mouthful. To, uh, that's why we have acronyms. Try putting that on a business <laughs> card. Right. That would be terrible. <laughs> but yeah, so that is part of the, the pipeline before they get to their first team. And then back in my day, we'd get our orders in third phase. Now they get their orders during SQT of what team they're actually going to end up at. And so they'll end up either in Virginia Beach or San Diego or out in Hawaii. And then, uh, you know, they'll do their first two deployments out there with their, with their task units. And, you know, from there, it's, it's usually either I'm getting out or I'm reenlisting and going to another team, or I'm going to reenlist and go to become an instructor, or I'm going to screen for Naval Special Warfare Development Group or something along those lines. And then there's there's a pretty well-defined career path now where back in the day when I came in, you'd have a guy that, you know, goes to SEAL Team 5 and he stays at SEAL Team 5 his entire career until he retires. And now they, you know, they try to get you into joint positions, um, JSOC positions, obviously switching teams, going to training commands, all that kind of stuff, which the diversity in your career is a good thing and, but the one thing that you lose is all that subject matter expertise that you had while you're at your command and you didn't leave. So there's a, there's that balance there as well, trying to maintain that high level of proficiency when you lose those guys to go to say a training command. Are you allowed to say what teams you were on? Sure. So my first command was field delivery vehicle team one that's out in Hawaii. And that is our mini submersible team. Um, we have pilot and navigators at it that pilot and navigate the mini sub, which I went through that school to learn how to do that. And then you have your special reconnaissance side of the house, which they typically go to sniper school and free fall school and work out of the back of the SCV, whether it's going across the beach or doing whatever they might be doing. I left from there and I went to field team six. I was there. Uh, you were in field team six? Yes. Wow. So I got there in January 2001 and then started Green Team, which is another selection course that we have there. 9-11 um, happened and then my Green Team ended early along with 
like four other guys in my class and we checked into a assault team. And then uh, from there, our first day of work was a warning order to go to Afghanistan. So I was there until 2009 and then left there, went up to Alaska to be the senior enlisted advisor up at our debt in Kodiak. I left there in 2013 or late 12 and then uh, ended up at SEAL Team 4, basically, I was just getting ready to retire. I was a combat systems officer there, which I'm just kind of responsible with making sure every one of our troops have the equipment that they need to operate in the areas that they're going to be going to in the world once they deploy. September 11th, where were you? Yeah. (laughs) I was in Green Team, and we were actually training with the State Department on doing personal security detail training. So at the time, like, we would show our class would have to show up a couple hours before like the general command would show up. And we had our state department guy in the middle of our security diamond. And we're just kind of walking them around, you know, just kind of getting used to having, having to pace off of someone you can't really see, like if you're up in the front of the diamond or whatever. And, and just anybody that would walk by just keeping them away from that person in the middle of the diamond. Well, after about the third person asked, us have you guys seen the news yet i kind of got curious because i'm like i know all these people aren't starting their morning at the same place before they come to work (laughs) and i was like something's up so we were over by our medical building and i was like hey give me a second and i ran inside and just looked at one of their tvs that they had inside and the first tower was on fire and i was like holy crap so i ran outside and i was like hey you guys might want to come see this and we're sitting there watching the screen as the second tower was hit and uh, so just, you could just kind of tell it's like, yeah, that, that is definitely no accident and things are about to change. We just went on a training the rest of the day as we were supposed to because, you know, the assault teams were already set up to do what they do. Uh, none of us thought that there's any way we'd get pulled out of training to, you know, jump right into it. So it was kind of when I was told not to show up to go to D.C. to continue on our training for the personal security detail stuff. I was kind of like skeptical about it because if you miss movement, you're basically kicked out of training and then you go to another team. And so I was like asking my team leader, my boat crew leader, I was just like, dude, are you you sure I'm not supposed to leave on Sunday and I was supposed to like check in on Monday? And he's like, yes. And I'm like, 100% positive. (laughs) So I'm like, like, this doesn't sound right. And he's like, no, just show up to blue team on Monday. And I was like, all right, if this is not, where I'm supposed to be on Monday, I'm not going to be real happy. So yeah, on Monday I showed up with, saw a couple other dudes from my green team class, saw a couple guys I knew from out at SCD team going out in Hawaii and we were hanging out and I was like, Hey, do you guys know what's going on? They're like, no, we don't know what's going on. They probably did. But, uh, so the head shed came out of their office and turned off the lights and turned on the Proxima and, you know, the warning order to get ready to go hit a target and down by uh, Kandahar. Yeah. It's, happened real fast and then I ended up doing eight deployments between Iraq and Afghanistan and uh what time period Steve 2001 to 2006 and how long were each was each deployment they're usually about three months our op tempo I don't know (laughs) it'd be hard to do more than three months there was times I'd come back 20 pounds lighter than I was and I left three months earlier so it was uh it was pretty tearing packing to the body uh we typically were out in 
you know, fire bases where we were kind of supported, supported, but not really like we might have a helicopter come in and there might be a box of food. Um, a lot of times we'd have our interpreters go in town and get food for us. Uh, so yeah, keeping our nutrition up and everything like that was not the number one priority. It seemed like, and, and, uh, you know, ended up between the two countries doing about 250 combat ops and it was busy. I'll say that for sure. What is the hardest part about the deployments? Is it, is it lack of sleep? Is it just the constant stress? What is the most mentally taxing part of those? Mm, for me, I think it was, we, there was a couple of times where we brought up to our higher, up, higher ups that, you know, we needed, we need to take a break and chill because we're setting up a pattern or we're, why are we going on this op where it doesn't make any sense? And, you know, it seemed like those are the ops where we would lose somebody when we'd go and do them. Cause we know what we look for in our enemy when we're trying to hunt them. And it's like, we're doing exactly what we want them to do right now. And we need to like change up everything that we're doing right now. And, you know, we wouldn't get that answer of, yeah, go ahead and do that. Change it up. We get the answer of not nah, go ahead and keep doing what you're doing. You guys are fine. Um, that to me was the most frustrating part by far. Like I could go without the sleep. I could go without the food. I didn't care if I got rocketed or mortared. I mean, I tell people all the time, they're like, you know, most team guys wouldn't say goodbye, you know, to your wife, kids, whoever you're saying goodbye to. That's goodbye. That's not, hey, I'll see you in three months. So if I do, you know, the stars aligned and everything's good. But with what the job is that we're doing, you know, you, you can't have any distractors or, you know, your brother that you're supposed to have their back or their front or side might not make it back because you're too worried about yourself and getting back to where you need to be, where you think you need to be. So whenever, you know, that's one thing that people kind of really, they find it hard to believe that. And I'm like, no, man, like, seriously, if you want to do your job, up to the 100% of your ability, you got to like, just let that go. And typically each deployment, you know, I'd have a teammate that would make it back. And so it's, that's just part of doing business, you know? Well, you brought up marriage. Were you married at the time? Are you married now? Because we talk about the attrition rate for Navy SEALs. Unfortunately, (laughs) marriages with Navy SEALs have a high attrition rate. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. And I believe the attrition rate is higher than it is for us during training. I've been told it's in the 90% plus um, range. Uh, I was married at the time, uh, divorced when I got up to Alaska. And I think a lot of the reason for my first marriage to even last as long as it did is I was only home about two months out of the year. And oh, my gosh. Sporadic, like a couple weekends here and there and a few days, whatever. So I didn't really even know my spouse at the time. And then when we got in a vehicle to drive to Alaska, that was the longest one straight amount, longest time together we had ever spent. And uh, I did not know who this person was at all anymore. And it was just, we were on two separate pages and I was just like, yeah, this is not right. Like we're not where we should be. And, and did you have so, children? Yeah, one, we had, I had two sons at the time. And they're both adults now, but uh, 
Well, that's yeah, hard uh, on the family that you leave at home because you're off fighting absolutely. your war and the spouses yeah. are at home fighting their own war, trying to take care of everything. So it's stressful for yep. both of you. No, I, I agree a hundred percent. It is. Um, and it takes a special couple to be able to pull that off. Like I've known a couple of them. And the one thing that I, looking back at it, the one thing I kind of noticed that was similar between them is both people were professionals. So like you had your professional military person, but then the spouse was also a professional in whatever field it was that they're involved in. And uh, whether they had children or not, like they just, you know, figured it out. Um, those are the ones that I'd seen work, but for them, yeah, the majority, it just doesn't seem to work out to the point where it's kind of like, you know, <laughs> my grandfather used to joke about it when he went to go get married, he had to get a special request shit signed by his commanding officer, allowing him to go get married. And he was like, they ought to do that. And, you know, <laughs> they ought to do that in the military to these days. And this is like, I don't know, back early 2000s or maybe like mid later 90s when he was saying this and you know it makes sense it's like you know you don't know where your road's gonna go when you're in the military unless it's like well if they want me to go do this I'm just gonna get out like if that's an option or that was an option for me when I was first going into buds I was like I'm gonna do five years and get out and then I didn't go to a team that I wanted to go to so I wanted to go to another team and then you know one thing led to another and you know, so I stayed in a lot longer than I originally planned. And, you know, it's just uh, sometimes that's just not going to work for the other person that's in your life at the time. And, you know, you got to make that decision. It's like, I'm gonna, am I going to get out for my spouse? And then what am I going to do from what we do? I mean, you can find some things, but there's not, not like, say you're a medic, you can go right into the medical field or something like that. But um, the wolf rate's extremely high in the field teams. I'm quite sure it's probably that way across the entire special operations community, not just so much the SEAL teams. You talked about being away from home that year where you were only at home like two months. So when you are out for 10 months, is that, I want to say, like a normal life for you? Or do you long for that normal life ever when you're gone that much? Well, it, it was normal then just because that's just how it was. So while you weren't overseas, you're back in the United States, either going to schools, doing individual types of schools, and then you're spending time doing training. So you're getting, so you're integrating your new people and any integrating any augmentees that you have coming from other forces into our team, uh, getting everybody off on the same sheet of paper before we go, you know, back overseas. So, I mean, it was important what we were doing. Um, and, but yeah, it was, you're, you're just going a lot. Even when you're supposed to be home, they would figure out a way to keep a certain number back in Virginia Beach, but then get everybody else out training and doing stuff just to, you know, you're always trying to look for that next advantage that you can use when you're overseas, whatever that might be, whether it's equipment or, you know, some new tactic or something. So when you're home, this might be apropos for Navy SEAL, do you ever feel like a fish out of water? <laughs> like you like right. you're so out of the loop on what's going on at home and you feel guilty ever. Are you itching for the next thing? Like, okay, when is the next deployment or when am I going to be stationed here? Yeah. Um, I, I kind of just went back into like my role. It was like, go mow the yard and take care of the pool. 
you know, go take the kids to school, you know, try to be a dad again. Um, so it took a little bit of getting used to, but I think if anything, most of us, we just disrupted the whole like life flow that was going on in the home at the time, us showing up and was like, Hey, let's go do this. Or, Hey, I'm inviting some friends over this weekend or whatever it might be. That's a weird situation to be in, right? Your dad, your husband, and yet you feel like the disruptor because they have a life when you're not there because they have to have a routine and then you come home and you disrupt (laughs) that routine. Yeah, you you have no idea what that routine is. You're keeping the kids up later than what they're supposed to be. You know, it's just trying to make up for a lot of time. That's really interesting way to think about it. And it's sad in a way that you are the disruptor. Yeah. Wow. Well, you received an, a silver star. What was that about? What did that entail? So that was a op that we did in Afghanistan in 2006. And so we, during that time, uh, our target set as far as like Al-Qaeda set uh, dried up a bit. So General McChrystal said, us to start hitting the Taliban and so we started hitting them and uh, we hit a target one night but rolled into the daytime and then from that target we just started watching this patrol of of Taliban fighters grow every night it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and every night they would stop in, in a village they would do like an evening prayer they would scatter into surrounding buildings and then the next evening they'd come back out and the group would somehow grow like we don't know if there are people who are coming in during the day because we had uh, we had surveillance watching these things uh, watching this group like 24 7 and so we were the original plan was to go do a uh, battle damage assessment for a kinetic strike meaning they're they were going to have two aircraft come in and light this patrol up and then we were going to kind of just go in there and see if we could find any you know evidence anything that we could use to as intelligence or equipment or whatever it might be initial strike from the aircraft totally was botched and it maybe took out about 15 of the very lead people in the patrol and then it just looked like someone just stepped on a fire ant hill and like there was just bodies sprinting everywhere in the dark. And in the meantime, myself and the two assault team leaders were back at a fire base near Kandahar and we're just watching this on the predator screen. And it's just like, man, that's freaking nuts down there. And then, so an AC-130 rolls in and starts just hammering anything that it can see moving. I told my guys, my sniper team, I was like, hey, just go ahead and take your kid off. There's no way we're going. There's just too many variables that are unknown, too many structures, compounds, stuff all around the area where they hit this patrol. And so they didn't, so we're just sitting there watching it. We call it kill TV. That's what we call the predator footage because they're just watching people getting killed. That's awful. And uh, yeah, well, it's just the reality of war. It is what it is, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, either that or watch a movie about it. I mean, I don't know. So about five minutes goes by and their phone in their office area rings and one of the guys picks it up and it's it's our captain, our CO from uh, 
back at team six and he's just like you guys get on the helicopter we can put you right in the middle of this thing so we jack back up and get on the bird there's us and three four other 47s and we had like because we knew how big this patrol was so we had like extra rangers for our blocking positions we took like some of our techs which are like dudes that set up some of our surveillance equipment or weapons guys or whatever we had them get kitted up and get on the birds too because we're like we need like everybody we got for this we land kind of near where that initial strike took place and the other four helos land way far outside of us to try to contain anybody from running out to have to come back in and then of course the ac-130 is still just lighting the place up and and that by this time there was two ac-130s so it was like you couldn't see a whole lot uh, i was first off the helo there was 13 dudes behind me and just regular night vision there's so much <laughs> there's so many fires not fires as in the actual fire burning but just ordinance that has been dropped that it was super dusty and you could hardly see anything so we're moving like how we would normally move in a like a formation so we could mutually support each element and you know, just kind of clearing walls and stuff with grenades and finally finding where some of the fighters are at and getting into it with them. And you know, it was just a lot of moving around and uh, myself and I put one of my snipers with the assaulters and I took my other sniper with me and we just started getting into different places where we could get like less protected firing positions, but where we could see more of the Taliban fighters. So we were kind of exposing ourselves a lot and, and, I had this little piece of technology with me that it was totally uh, being tested at the time, but within my night vision goggles, I could hit a button and it would turn up, up a uh, thermal screen. So it would cut through all the dust and everything. So I could see all my guys, I could see my entire assault force. I knew where my other sniper was. So, and then, you know, I could of course then start seeing where all the Taliban guys are too. So we just The Navy started SEALs lighting. get the best toys, right? We get some pretty good ones. I'll say that. Like, I tell you what, if, if it wasn't for those goggles that night and me being able to see where a lot of these guys are coming from, coming at our assaulters, I don't think we all would have got out of there um, alive because uh, there was so, it was such an overwhelming number. And, you know, there's just times where the, obviously the enemy is going off what they're hearing, they're hearing gunfire. So there's a, there's a difference between what our, weaponry sounds like and what their weaponry sounds like so they're moving towards that and a lot of times i would just get in between them and my guys and then that that would be it for them and you know it's just moving just moving and i don't know it was it was just a long crazy night and uh we finally got to a point where i was off climbing some wall somewhere and then i heard a grenade go off and then I heard that we had a guy wounded and uh, everybody was kind of doing a mag check after they cleaned up the building that that frag came out of. And uh, everybody was down to like the last magazine, no more grenades, no more, like we didn't have a whole lot left. And I was like, if we come across a, like another decent size amount of people, uh, we may be going to pistols or the call was made by the team leaders. Like, Hey, we need to pack up and get out of here. And so assault team started packing up. I kind of stayed where I was at just, just in case I saw someone coming from wherever. And, 
And then uh, we collapsed down to where our EOD guy was uh, rigging a bunch of uh, RPGs and weapons and stuff like that to blow. And then, uh, you know, we found like some American night vision on some of the dead guys that were down there. And so at this point in the war, we knew that they were using night vision as well. So we knew we weren't just invisible like we were at the beginning. Um, so yeah, it was, it was just a long, it was just a lot of fighting and, um, yeah, everybody was definitely risking their lives for each other, for sure. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing about the brotherhood and, you know, having your brothers back and having your brother, however he needs to be covered, you know? Uh, so we got out of there, got back on the bird and then had our one injured guy and he took a little bit of fragmentation from that grenade, but it was nothing life threatening and got back to Kandahar air base. And then <laughs> it's funny, all of our special operations aircraft, they like, once the sun comes up, they disappear <laughs> and they won't come back until the sun's back down again. So we had to wait that cycle of light until we could get a ride back to where we were going. Really? Which, it's understandable because they have less chance of being seen if it's dark out when they're flying. Well, I just have a few more questions and then we'll move on from the Navy SEALs. All right. Do you use fear, your fear, to help keep that adrenaline pumping during those combat missions? Or are you able to totally displace the fear because of muscle memory? Mm, I'd say it's, I'd say you just kind of word it differently because if you don't have some kind of fear, you can do something dumb. Right. That'll probably get you killed. Uh, so there is that little bit of fear that kind of makes you check yourself before you make some, a really bad decision. Um, but you definitely don't let fear take over at all because then obviously you're not going to be able to do your job. But yeah, you have to have a little, there's got to be a little bit, just like that little bit in there that's like, all right, man, <laughs> like that's probably not the door you want to go into by yourself. Like wait till someone else is here or it, just those little spidey senses that would, you know, keep you from doing, keep, keep you from getting too far ahead of the game. I guess you could call it within the combat situation where you're, you're still supported. You're, you can still mutually support your brothers. They can support you. And, uh, you know, obviously there's times where you have to be unsupported, especially, you know, when it when it's necessary but you know those those hopefully are few during your career but you know sometimes you just have to hang it out there why is navy seal team number six so well known why when people think of navy seals team six comes up i'd say probably because of osama bin Laden being killed by them i would say also when like the TV shows that are on now about SEAL teams that depicting SEAL Team Six. Um, that I saw a long time ago with Charlie Sheen in it, Navy SEALs. That was a depiction of SEAL Team Six. It's a, I think with social media and stuff like that, and just everything that's out there, that easy access. And then, you know, SEAL Team Six was actually the third SEAL team um, on the East Coast. It was no, actually, it was a third SEAL team overall. Um, just the what it was set up to do, like just the whole counterterrorism. That's all that its mission was for. Um, a lot of the things that they did back in their infancies when they were 
pursuing like red selling other bases and things like that within the United States to test their security systems against infiltration. And the successes that they had infiltrating those bases was pretty amazing. Uh, which are good because then it's, it's like, okay, it's bad on the base right now, but now we know what to fix so that doesn't happen in the future. And rather have it our own forces do it than someone else that has some other agenda. I think it's just known because usually when something really good happens or something really bad happens, it seems like it's associated with SEAL Team 6 or Naval Special Warfare Development Group, one of the two. So. From what I understand, you are not allowed to say how many teams there are, but you can find it online. Is that correct? <laughs> uh, I've never been told I can say how many teams there were, but yes, you can probably definitely find it online. Okay. Somebody once told me that, that you weren't allowed to say it. I don't know, remember who it was. So maybe yeah. I'm wrong there, but that it was kind of ridiculous because ridiculous you could find it online. Right. Before uh, President Obama said SEAL Team 6 on TV after Osama bin Laden was killed. Those words were never echoed. So it was like right when he opened up the floodgates, that's when, you know, books started coming out, movies started coming out, all that stuff started coming out. Because I think that the logic was, well, if the president can come out, commander in chief can come out and say it, you know, why shouldn't I since I've been there? And there's a reason behind that. It's supposed to confuse the enemy. Is that right uh i don't i don't know why they changed it all of a sudden it doesn't really matter like any intel person is going to sift through it and figure it out but that <laughs> was the original intent wasn't it it's like it, there was no number yeah. one or something and started off with oh, yeah yeah it was to throw it was to make them think that there was more seal teams than right there actually were what i think it used to be right okay so what year did you retire and what does it mean for you to have that title as Navy SEAL? So I retired in 2014. And to me, having that title Navy SEAL is like, that was a big piece of my life. I mean, I've lost a lot of friends in that lifetime. Um, you know, lost family in that lifetime. Uh, it's shaped me to do what I'm doing now. It's, uh, definitely instilled resiliency into me. I mean, there I could go on to all these catch words of things that it, of, of what it's done. It's kind of funny, like our brotherhood's super tight when you're in. And then if you, I guess if you get out and you retire and you stay like in Virginia Beach or San Diego, it's probably a little bit different. But when you move to Kentucky, where there's a handful of seals out here, there's not that many. And we do get together from time to time, but it's uh, not like it used to be but it's still really cool when you get together and just hang out. And But uh, it was the uh, most de developing part of my life. I would say, um, obviously getting myself to where I am today, but uh, yeah, it's by far, by far the most important part of my life that I've had. We know the sad statistic of 22 a day. Have you lost more people that you know, that you were brothers with, that you were comrades with, that you count as a friend, did you lose more of them while you were on deployment or when they got home? So as of right now, it's while, while I was on deployment or they were on deployment. 
Like, so I may not have been on deployment with them, but I've lost uh, more brothers in combat, though those numbers are catching up from the other yeah. side. And I mean, two summers ago, I lost two mentors. One was my sniper school instructor that led the schoolhouse, and the other one was a third phase chief that ran third phase and buds, uh, both of whom I looked up to very highly. I both, both of them, I was able to work with later in my career with both of them as a total blind side. Never. I mean, obviously I hadn't talked to them in a few years and that was, uh, that one took a little bit of time for them to settle in of why. And I still don't really know why I was only trying to imagine why, um, one of them, you know, he, was in NSW for an entire military career. Then he came back as a civilian and did the civilian career. And then it was some time after he left as a civilian till the time he took his life. And then what I heard was the other one was having health issues. So I don't know a hundred percent, but yeah, both of those really, they're, they stunned me like big time because I had never thought either, either one of those guys would ever ever even think about doing something like that but you just never know you know you get that chink in your armor and that chink starts to rust try to try to you know get your mind onto something else keep your hands busy that's i mean one of the whole reasons i bought this super old church camp was i knew it was going to keep me busy and engaged and uh, a lot of work was going to need to go into this place so i mean i definitely have my mind occupied and we are going to talk about that here. But first, I want to ask you, you speak about those chinks in the armor. And when you come back, you have so many chinks, I would think, because you talk about the people that you lose while you're there, the carnage that you see. And then you come back and you're expected to live a normal life. What? Right monsters did you bring back with you do you have pts are you dealing with any of that or did you have to deal with that no i'm still dealing with it um and you're absolutely right about so again i go i refer back to my grandfathers and you know we'd get done it was this one deployment in particular we got done with an op the other squadron was there to relieve us we basically threw our sweaty, dirty kit into an ISU-90s and loaded them up, got on a uh, C-17 and flew back to Virginia Beach. And now I'm walking in my front door 16 hours, 16, 18 hours later after just walking off of an op. And my grandfather was like, how can you do that? Like, how can you, how can you go from having to be in that situation to then walking through the door of your house? I'm like, I don't know. I never really even thought about it because it's just what we do. Cause he was like, when we're getting done with world war ii and we got back on the ships to go back to the united states they would like go slow intentionally to take like twice as long for them to get back to the u.s as what they would normally if they were like hauling butts to get to europe and he said yeah everybody would just be playing cards and chilling out and relaxing and you, you know and three weeks later you're pulling into wherever you're pulling into he's like i couldn't even imagine having to do what you guys are doing and dealing with and I was like, yeah, never thought of it that way. But yeah, so after I retired, I mean, there's a lot of things that there's like, uh, I went through a long period of time where just having super severe night sweats, like my brain just trying to process out trauma. 
and it, I mean, that still happens today. It's uh, even in, like in your sleep where you're in that fight mode, you know, just not sleeping normal, sweating. Uh, there's survivor's guilt. Like maybe I should have pushed the issue harder up the chain or just a lot of things. Like should I have left that command to go to another command? Would things have been different had I stayed, you know, um, open up those boxes too often and try to just kind of stay focused on what I'm doing now. And I know at, at some point in time, uh, some of those boxes are going to need to come open and need to get cleaned up. And if not, it'll probably just open themselves up one day and then probably won't be as good of a situation as if it was a controlled situation. But uh, yeah, I definitely um, came back with that. Came back with traumatic brain injury. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have a really good civilian doctor. I went to the VA for a while and all of a sudden, like I'm getting all these medications and all of a sudden I have high blood pressure and I have high cholesterol. And I'm just like, what in the heck's going on with me? Because I've never had any of these medical conditions ever. So a deputy sheriff friend of mine told me about this doctor in Lexington. So I started, I met with him and then he said, hey, the next time you come in, bring all your meds. I was like, all right. So I brought them all in. He's like, all these medications are great, but I'd never take them all together. And so he's like, we're going to wean you off of this one, take this. And then when when you're done weaning off of that one, bump this up to two, then wean off of this one and bump this up to three, then wean yourself off of this one. And, and it was a, like a miracle. Like three months later, after I was off of those three medications, my blood pressure was back to normal. My cholesterol was back to normal. Like it was crazy. So, and then he also has a hyperbaric chamber when he first, got the thing he and I had been talking about doing HBOT dives and I'm like yeah I know how to run a chamber and you know you wouldn't even need anybody there I could do it all myself from inside and he's like well we'll still have somebody there and I'm like okay how are you going to do it so we did I think I did a 47 uh, hyperbaric chamber dives and it was insane because like my memory was so bad anytime I went anywhere I had to write everything down like if I needed to go from the house to the farm to get something and then go back to the house. If I didn't write it down, I'd get up to the farm and was like, what was I coming up here to get? That sounds like me, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Can you explain to us exactly what happens in those chambers? Sure. So what you do, you get put on pure oxygen. So you're breathing that through either like a, one of the things they hook up to your nose, like nose tube, or you put on a small mask and then so that's pure O2, and then you, inside the chamber, you, you press that down to a depth of 100 feet. And so you're breathing pure O2 while under pressure. So that takes that oxygen on the molecular level and presses it super small so it can get into cells and stuff where it wouldn't be able to get into uh, at its normal size. And so you do that dive for about an hour and then come back up, and that's really to start to finish it's about a 10 minutes or so to get to depth 10 minutes or so to come back up so you're in it for about an hour and a half and then you know the first day I was like okay I didn't really notice anything but day three I was like and I'm starting to notice something different so then I started doing my list that I'd normally do in my phone before I'd go get something whether it's the grocery store at my farm and I would start getting things so I'd write it before I'd leave I'd go get my stuff and, and then check in and be like, wow, I got everything, which never happened like three days prior to this because I was diving Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. 
And then, so after the fifth dive that Friday, I started, my brain was like firing even better. And, you know, then I was like, okay, I'll wait until Sunday to go get some things that I'm thinking about today on Friday that are in my phone. And then came up to the farm on Sunday, grabbed all the stuff, looked at my phone. I was like, I can't believe this. I got, I mean, there's only like five things, but still it was like, had I tried to do that any other time, I would have forgotten by Sunday that I even wrote these things down on Friday. So it was a huge change for me. And then it just kept getting better and better over time and stayed really consistent with it. And the only thing that I've shortfalled myself on is I need to do maintenance dives. I've been not doing those at all. And I need to get in and, and do How those. How often are you supposed it, to do those? So they start out like once a week and then you go once every other week and like every three weeks and then once a month. Have you done um, psychedelic mushrooms? And the reason why I ask this is I recently spoke to uh, Wiz Buckley, who is uh, a naval pilot. And he talked about how he had severe PTS. And a few years back, he and Marcus Luttrell and some other people, I'm not sure exactly how many there were, went south of the border and did it. And he said it was very intense, very intense. I think he said it was like eight hours, 10 hours, something like that. You know, you're on, you're under constant surveillance, but he said all it took was that one session and it completely changed him. It opened so many pathways that mm. he feels like a different person. Right. So I've heard of it. I haven't done it. Uh, I'm open to doing that. I'm going to actually, the next thing I've been talking to my, with my doctor about doing is ketamine. So oh yes. We're going to do that. Yeah. And cause I want to start suggesting it to the veterans that come through our program, but I don't, I don't suggest anything or have them do anything unless I've tried it. So yeah, I'm kind of working on some dates where I can do that. And, uh, How important but, do you think these alternative treatments are considering when you talk about the VA and I hear it again and again and again, about them just overloading you with medication. You're a number. They need to get you right. in and out, which the whole thing pisses me off anyway, because we have Congress sitting on their fat butts, getting the best medical care in the world when our veterans are the ones that should be receiving it. But I guess that's a whole other episode, but it just, it makes me upset. But how important do you think these alternative treatments are for veterans to look at instead of just taking the heaps of medication that's being doled right. their way through the VA. Right. The heaps of medic- medication are terrible. Um, just in general, they're, it's too much. I don't think anybody even checks to see what the veteran's actually on before prescribing another medication. I was actually prescribed one medication where my heart rate went down to in the low 30s, high 20s, low 30s. How are you functioning? For like two or three days. That was the thing. I wasn't. So I stopped okay. taking it. And then when I told my doc about that, this is before I started seeing him, my civilian doctor, he was like, yeah, if you would have kept taking that, I would have killed you based on what the other things that you, you were must've been almost comatose. It was hard for you. You must've yeah. felt like you were underwater trying to move. Oh, it was, it was terrible. I, yeah. I was so out of it. It was unbelievable. So, um, I do feel that these alternative medical people are exploring and going down are really important because everybody I've talked to that has experienced them has had positive things to say. And my doc's been trying to get me to do ketamine for quite a while. I've just been trying to find the right time to do it. 
And, you know, when I do it, I know it's going to have the results that he's talking about because I've heard too many people say good things about it. But the ketamine, what how my doc explains it to me, it's, it's not so much you got brain cells that are dead. They're just asleep and this is going to wake them up and uh, get those pathways firing again. So I'm pretty excited to try it. But yeah, I think as far as, so the VA now actually is covering uh, either the VA or TRICARE, one of the two, they are covering some types of ketamine treatments. It's oh, a nasal, great. yeah, it's a nasal something or other type of treatment. So one of my uh, partner organization founders, he was telling me about that like a retreat ago. And I was like, that's pretty cutting edge. I was totally surprised to hear that. So hopefully there's some uh, hope coming down. There's some help coming down the way. So tell us about your baby Camp Brown Bear. Sure. So my when I was getting ready to retire, I wanted to move back up to Alaska to get my guide license and pilot license. And my wife at the time was a UK professor, University of Kentucky professor, couldn't find something to do up there. So I was like, all right, well, I'll move to Kentucky. I'll figure it out. Well, I had a dream. I was uh, giving instruction to a bunch of kids on how to do a friction fire, a bow drill. So you have like the bow and the stick and the spindle and you're sitting there pulling it back and forth and you create friction, which creates a, a little coal and you put that in a bunch of really dry stuff and start a fire. And so I woke up and I was like, hey, I'm going to start a fatherless boys camp for middle age school boys, you know, teaching primitive living and land navigation. And I was like, that'll give me a sense of purpose. Because that's what I was more looking for when I was getting out. I was like, what's going to be my purpose? I don't want to just get a job. I need to find something that's going to help others. And so that was going to be it. And so I left on a Wounded Warrior Project trip in February of 2015. Met some veterans from this area. They we're like, hey, man, we want to come out and help you. And I'm like, all right, cool. Because at the time, I was this place was totally overgrown. No one had lived up here in a couple of years. There hadn't been any type of camp up here in four years. So the vegetation had really taken this place over. So those guys came up, and we just spent the whole weekend cutting things down, piling them up, setting them on fire. We didn't even have any power in the building we were staying in. And it was like end of February, early March. We had like two kerosene heaters in there and everybody was just sleeping on the floor on cots or whatever. And we had a barbecue grill that we cooked all of our meals on. And and so that's not how it is anymore today, but it's, that was where we started. <laughs> Are you trying to and, assure us? I promise. <laughs> yeah, I, I promise it's not like that anymore. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, it was more of a, like a bunch of dudes just hanging out and having some beers, but I didn't, but at the time you could see the camaraderie starting to catch on. And then, so then we started gutting cabins, you know, down the road and, and I started thinking to myself, this is nasty, dirty work. It's like these cabins have been here since the 1970s, and there's so much stuff up in those attics and stuff, and they're bringing these ceilings down on top of you and all these carcasses and random junk like that come with animals, you know, just dropping all over people. And I'm like, all right, we got to find something to do. So then we incorporated kayaking in on, on Sundays. So then we'd work all day Saturday and then go kayak on Sunday, and then we you know, it started just slowly adding things to it, like yoga and meditation and and then acupuncture and then like art therapy and just started getting more involved in doing the holistic side of things. And so it turned into like, we still do a half day work project uh, Saturday morning. And then 
Saturday afternoons, all usually three holistic modalities. We got about 16 different ones that we pick from. We just kind of see which practitioners are available and we kind of go from there. And like Friday when they come in to the camp, we kind of start to get to know everybody, give them kind of a brief of where everything is. Uh, we have some live music and get the fire going. Not this time of year. It's like the fire actually probably feel cooler than it is outside right now. But uh, <laughs> sit around the fire, have some adult drinks and hang out and start to get to know each other. And then after the work project, everybody usually knows each other. And and then we go through the modalities. And then Friday or Saturday evening, it's the same thing. We uh, do the campfire again, but this time without live music. It's just nice and quiet out here. And everybody's just sitting around the fire. You know, guys are opening up a little bit more. And then uh, Sunday we get up. Uh, we go this time of year we go up to this place called Peaks Mill Kentucky where Canoe Kentucky's at and we kayak for about three and a half hours down Elkhorn Creek and then from there we go to the Wessex Brewing Company's farm that is up in that area and uh, have lunch up there and have some tap room beverages and then from there we'll go to a distillery and do a distillery tour and tasting and then that's the end of the retreat. We've been doing mail retreats since 2015 and then we started doing female retreats and then had to stop for a while. We did not have the right staff that we needed, but now we have our right staff again, and those are going to resume uh, in October. And then in July, we just started doing couples retreats. So that looks like a veteran and then a support person. doesn't have to be a spouse. Um, it can be a roommate. It can be a boyfriend, girlfriend. It could be a uh, adult child that's taking care of their adult parent veteran or vice versa. It could be an adult, that, a parent taking care of their veteran child and bring them out here. The veteran will do the same exact thing that I just described. And then the only difference in the weekend for the support person is on Saturday morning, the support person goes through SAVE training, which is a suicide awareness training that the VA has started that's focused on veterans. And I have not been through it yet, but I've had people from my staff go through it. And then all the, all the participants that have been through it, all of them have said it's been, it was awesome. So at some point in time, I will sit down during it. I just usually am in charge of doing our work project. So if I can find a work project that, you know, I can pass on to somebody else to do, then I'll, I'll sit in on it. And because it kind of almost makes sense to even bring it into the male or female veteran retreat because veterans hang out with veterans. Like, I either hang out with veterans or it's law enforcement. I don't, I rarely hang out with civilians. You don't want to I hang just, out with us common folk, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's that. It's just, it, it's they just, know what you've weird, been through. Yeah. There's this you weird have shared yeah, experiences. And then the, and then the ones that don't are just kind of like, I don't, can I talk to this guy? Or like, I don't know. It's just, it's just more comfortable. So typically, yeah. I, when I have friends up here and we do something, it's my veteran friends or, federal law enforcement guys or local law enforcement guys and and uh so yeah they get it and um but so that's kind of how we do our how what our retreat looks like and then we do about 12 a year we're going to bump that number up to 15 next year because we're having overwhelming demand for well the couples retreats it was crazy it was in like less than 30 hours i had to turn that application off because we needed five couples and we had 20 apply for it and the female retreats was almost the same way when we first 
open up the applications for them. Like we opened them up one time. We had so many, we had enough email retreats to just from that to like cover all the ones that we did. And so it was like, okay, we can't, we need to get our staff straight. We're not going to have our female retreats as staffed by all females. And most of them are veterans. And some of them are either closely related to veterans. Um, everybody here is a volunteer as well. So that kind of makes it a little more difficult to find people that will do it because you know, we we keep our costs down by not paying people. <laughs> you know, that's just not in their wheelhouse right now. Yeah. They, you know, need to work and make money. Where uh, my my hope is to just I'll find those right veterans that are retired or medically retired that you know their living expenses are covered and they're looking for something to do. And you know, coming out here and volunteering might be one of those things, or to any organization to that matter that might be in their area, just to go out and get involved a little bit and get a little sense of purpose in your life. What months do you run your camp? So we run them. So it's changed a little bit. So when we don't run them, so right now it's going to be the month of August, but now August is so hot, like even like wait July. So next year we're not going to have any retreats after the second weekend of July through after September 11th, whatever that next weekend would be, uh, mainly because of the heat. And we try to do things outside all the time. And we try to do things around a fire. And then we started a podcast called After the Fire. And right now we can't have a fire because it's too hot. And then in November, the first three weekends of November, or the first three weeks in November, we won't do uh, retreats out here either because it's modern rifle season for white-tailed deer. And it sounds like a freaking combat zone up here the first weekend. So it's, I'm just like, we're just going to take all the gunfire out of this. So while that season's going on, we don't have any retreats. And then I kind of even spring turkey season, there's not as many hunters out in this area, but there's still enough bangs and booms that it might trigger somebody. And, you know, we want everybody out to come out here and enjoy the peacefulness of the property and the safety of it and the sereneness of it and not worry about weapons being discharged, you know, two properties over or something like that. So we are open most of the year. It's basically... January, February, and March. And then we block out that little bit of time in April during uh, spring turkey season. Then May, June. Then once we get into July, August, September, we knock that out. End of September, all of October, that part of November, then all of December. So somewhere in there, we're going to fit 15 next year. So is everything closed right now, all your applications? They are, yes. Because we have waiting lists right now. And we're trying to get through our waiting lists before we open anything back up again. That's why we're gonna start trying to do more. It's a good problem to have. Uh, I don't like it though, but it's a good problem to have too many people signing up for things, but it just tells me how much of a need it is. And there's people out there needing something and they're not getting it. And so we're trying to do our best and we're trying to partner up with other organizations to, hey, this is what we do. Maybe you guys should try it. And we're actually looking at maybe opening another location somewhere between Arizona and Montana. This happens that you happen to be in that area, but. (laughs) So do people pay for this on their own or is everything donated to pay for their tuition or whatever you may want to call it? Yeah, good question. So everything is free for the veterans. The only thing that we don't cover right now is transportation, which we hope to be able to do that at some point in time. You know, we'll base that off of whatever the GSA mileage is or you know, what a plane ticket costs or whatever. So we've been able to keep our costs down low enough that worst case scenario, I can self-fund this place. 
but uh, it definitely does help to have offsetting funds to be able to take care of things. And then that money can go towards like improving and upgrading and that kind of stuff. And, you know, before COVID hit, when I, I was uh, picked back up to work at the command in Alaska as a civilian uh, instructor and boat driver. And then I also ran fishing boats out of Kodiak, Alaska as well. So I was up there seven months out of the year doing those two jobs and using that money to come back down here to, to renovate this place. Wow. That's and, admirable. Uh, this is the right thing. I, I always told myself I was never going to ask for any money. Like, I just don't think I don't want to do that. Uh, I did go to Notre Dame and I took their, went through their Mendoza uh, business college to take nonprofit executive courses just to make sure I'm not doing things wrong. I uh, want to make sure I'm doing it right. And, you know, they, they talked about fundraising all the time and having galas and all this stuff. And I'm like, I do not want to do any of that. Like, there's no way I'm doing that. I would rather just pay for it myself. And if somebody wants to help out along the way, then please do. Um, but now it's looking for another place out West. Yeah. We're definitely going to need help because, you know, I'm not working in Alaska anymore. One. Um, so, Northern Utah is really but, pretty. I don't know. I've been to Utah a lot. Oh, beautiful, okay. Beautiful state. Yeah. Yeah. We've actually, I've been out to Utah quite a few times training back in the teams and, uh, then on, you know, vacations. Well, when the participants leave after the weekend, what do you want them to leave with? What do you hope they've gained? I want them to see that they're not in it alone, especially the, like with the spouses now, they're really, really communicating a lot more than what the veterans actually do uh, during the retreats. They're, they're bonding faster. Um, the thing I enjoy the most, what I see is when a veteran comes here and they're shut down and they're just not talking, they're not, they're not like making fun of the other services. Like when they're not doing that, you know, there's something wrong. And it's by Saturday when they'll start like joking around. I mean, just 24 hours later, they're starting their heads, their heads up again, their shoulders back again. They're starting to talk more by Sunday. Yeah. They're, they're, they're bashing on each other. Uh, just having a good time. It's like they've known each other for like, they're deployed together in a unit together, but you know, this is the first time they've ever met. So to me, that's like what I want to see. Like, and what I don't want to, I don't want ever anybody to ever think that when you come here, we're going to like poke you and prod you and like ask you a bunch of questions and anything like that, because that's what, that's what other organizations are for. Like the VA, they're, they're, they're going to do that. And they're going to make you feel uncomfortable here. It's just about having a good time. And if you want to open up and talk about something, yeah, that's, you can do that. Or if you don't want to talk about anything at all, you can do that too. We don't, and usually the round the fire Saturday night after everybody's had a couple or three beers or so the stories will start to flow because someone will hear something similar to something that they don't want to talk about but somebody's talking about it and then they'll start talking about it and then somebody else talks about it and then it's just it's just crazy and then you see them all Sunday morning and they're like let's refresh one guy come out here he didn't talk an entire weekend his first trip here and the only thing he said at the end of the weekend was he shook my hand and he said thank you but he had this like I don't know, 10 mile stare, thousand mile stare. Like he looked right through me. He didn't, he wasn't looking at me. So uh, with all the different modalities we have, we, uh, we ask people to come back or we at least encourage them to come back because they haven't seen them all yet. And hopefully one of these things will resonate with them and then they take off and go do that. And 
and they come back when they need to. And if they never come back again, that's awesome. And we did what we needed to do. Well, this guy came back a couple of months later and he was like, thank you, you changed my life. He still wasn't like close to being normal yet. He still had like this really gazing stare and basically he came back for like the next year and a half, like pretty much every retreat we did. And this guy went from, he had two suicide attempts prior to coming here this first time. He went and got his master's degree in art. He became a high school art teacher and just made some really crazy PTSD art like insane and then uh sadly he started having health issues i think my like a lot of respiratory issues i don't know where exactly i know he was in the army i don't know where exactly he was at overseas and but from what it sounds like it sounds like burn pit type of issues and uh eventually you know he succumbed to those and passed away yeah but to seeing someone turn their life around like him was amazing and it was like when I first started doing this, I was like, if we can only just keep one. And I was just like, we've had a lot of people come here, just shut down and turn their lives around. So we just want to keep doing what we're doing. I don't want to change things too much. And the only thing I know we need to change is we need to be able to help out more. And the only way we can really do that is by at least having another place to do these actions. It's, you know, we'll get applicants from California. And I'm like, California, I'm like, are you kidding me? There's nothing like out West that you can go to like this. So. I don't know if there is or not, but somehow they heard about us, but we don't advertise. <laughs> I don't even know how these people hear of us. Your good work. That might be one of my right. questions. I guess I need to put that question on our application. How'd you hear of us? Because now I'm starting to wonder. Well, the thing that I'm struck with is that you help with PTS. And then you also help with, and this I think is still really taboo, Steve, because I've done Uh, about a hundred episodes. And I've spoken to a few people about the next subject where it's been kind of in the background, but it's never been in the forefront. And that is military sexual trauma. Right. That do you feel like that's still pretty taboo where I feel like PTS is coming to the front. Now it's becoming more acceptable that yes, of course, how could these men and women not have PTS but the sexual trauma to me, it still seems right. kind of hidden in the shadows. No, I definitely. Um, so most of our females that come here when they, on their application, most of them say that they're MST victims, military sexual trauma victims. I've never had a guy put it on their application, but I've had a few confide in me later on into the retreat that that has happened to them. And the first time I had a guy tell me that I almost was like, you gotta be kidding. I wasn't, I was thinking this. I wasn't like, I was trying to, I'm like, okay, keep your posture and your demeanor exactly how it is right now, but like process this in your brain really quick because what I'm hearing right now, I, I'm, I can't believe I'm really hearing, but I'm, I'm hearing it and I'm just like, holy cow. And then he goes into the details of the whole attack and everything. And I'm just like, you gotta be shitting me. So yeah, there, I mean, definitely something that's happening on the male side of the house too. I don't have any of the details or the statistics of branches, what type of work they're doing within that service or anything like that. But yeah, it's definitely, I would say on the male side of the house, I don't think it's talked about at all. And even on the female side of the house, there's been, you know, we had a major uh, in in the army that was uh, basically gang raped. And uh, 
her command told her to just shut up. Like, no one wants to talk about it. I mean, the, the victims want to talk about it, but they can't. And then they get forced out or they get out and then they can't talk about it at home, you know, or it seems that way. So they're, it's a tough one. Like, that's a really tough one. I'm like, they have to find that right counselor or somebody that they can talk to about it because they're definitely between a rock and a hard place. And even like the, that first guy that told me about it, he got kicked out because of talking about it. So, so they're getting punished for something that happened to them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Exposure I've had to the guy side, yes. And then also with the female side, um, most of them just suck it up and just keep quiet about it, finish out their enlistment or their whenever they can first get out or stay in until they retire or whatever and just package it up and keep it with them. Um, we've had uh, one female, she was somewhere, came in, it was, I want to say late seventies, early eighties. And that's when, and like right away when she went in the military, she experienced it. And then she's basically held it like inside and didn't talk about it until one of these, one of our retreats that we did. And she came out like, I'm, I'm not involved out when the female retreats going on. I just stay, I'm on the property, but I'm not out there, but she let it out and, you know, talked about it for like the first time. And, and, uh, has said that you know that really helped her out a lot just talking about it around the fire with other people that were victims of it why does the military want to keep that so quiet is it because they just don't want to deal with it they don't want to have to unpack it what is the big deal why is the victim getting the brunt of it instead of those who are who should be held responsible yeah um i don't know like it it kind of baffles me i think it they don't want to be embarrassed as a as a force or something would be my guess. Uh, maybe too much of a dark cloud to have. Like, I don't know right now, as far as recruitment issues, I don't think you want to go around touting military sexual trauma or something that might happen to you. You know, I've been told numbers before. It's kind of staggering. I want to say it's either four out of 10 or six out of 10 females um, will experience some sort of assault or trauma. I don't want, don't quote me on that because that's, I'm trying to remember it from a meeting I was in probably a couple months ago, but it was a lot higher than I thought it would be. And I think it's because the military doesn't want to talk about it because they just don't want to have to deal with it. Let's hope like PTS, it starts to come to the forefront then because you have to deal with it. Yeah. And so the stats are showing right now, female veterans, they outpace male veterans in suicide. And we think a lot of it is because of military sexual trauma and it's not because the numbers higher it's just percentage wise so out of 22 a day i think it's like six a day are females and and that number that's only based off of the va numbers so all those people that have committed suicide of the 22 or they're saying 16 nowadays that's based off of veterans that actually go to va facilities i was able to talk to a, a female veteran that runs four hospitals in arizona and she is in communication with all these other civilian hospitals. And they estimate the number more like 44 a day. You're kidding. 44? So like in Arizona, the VA only sees about 17% of the veterans in the state. So when you're taking little numbers like that, and I know Arizona's got a bad rep VA-wise, but I mean, I don't think any state's going to have 100%. And 
So you're going to have somewhere probably between 15 and 75 percent of all veterans that they're seeing, maybe the VA is probably not even that, maybe 40 to 50 percent. So then you, everybody else is, you know, after they take their life, they're going to a civilian hospital. This person may have never been into a VA system at all, and they find out it was a veteran, but they note it. And so, yeah, the number is way higher than what the VA is saying since it's based off the numbers seen at the VA. Our VA system is so broken. It makes me sick. It really does. Well, the thing is, too, about the sexual trauma is doesn't word get around anyway? Aren't I would think that would affect the enlistments, the female enlistments, because they're going to start hearing things that, you know, maybe I'm not safe in the military. So why even join? I just, I don't understand it. Right. I, I really don't know. I mean, really, it's like, like before this, we had very few females at our unit and we just never heard about it. And like how everything is getting squashed down the way it is. So like, and then one of the times so we had a Navy corpsman that was in my truck, she was in the back and we were going from kayaking to go to Wessex farm to go have lunch. And she just started talking to herself and I'm not going to say anything to her. Like female, say something to the female, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. And so they start talking and, I'm, and she's just like, I just feel bad that I had to re-victimize all those women. And she and the other lady is like, "What? What do you mean?" She's like, "All oh, the rape kits." And I'm like, "I'm like, oh shit!" And she's so she's going into this thing, and she's like, "Yeah, there's like the 26th one. We finally caught him." And uh, and so they're talking, and she's like, "Well, who was it?" And or how how was he caught? And it was like, "Well, we finally found saliva on one of the female, on one of the victims, and it ended up being the chaplain." And I was just like, you got to be kidding me. Like, just saying it to myself, like, I cannot believe I just heard what I just heard. Because that's the one person that you should feel safe with, you know, out of anybody. That's the person that you're going to when you have sexual trauma. Exactly. Wow. Do you think that we are failing veterans now? And what can we do better to help veterans? Yeah, I definitely do. I think, I mean obviously with our suicide rate as high as what it is and uh, the just what you hear. I mean, I've heard this said before. This is definitely not my idea, but I think it's a great idea. You just take all the money that is used to fund the VA and put it into a pot of money and give every veteran a medical card to go find their own practitioner, go find their own herbalist, go find whatever it is that they think as far as what they need to do to help with whatever it is that they've been through and go at it that way. And then you're not having to keep up with an entire infrastructure system. I mean, just that alone is just billions of dollars a year, let alone everything that you're paying. And, and all these doctors and therapists and stuff like that could just then go in the civilian world and you're probably going to see them anyways, but it's just now you're going to be seeing them in a, in a better way to see them. So, and then they're held a little more accountable, I think as well in the civilian sector as opposed to the VA. That's my own opinion, but <laughs> I don't know. Do but you, I thought that was a really good idea. Yeah, you know, I do that too. That probably work. Do you think there is healing in veterans sharing their stories? Without a doubt. I see it every retreat. Without a doubt. Yeah. 
like you'll see someone tell their story and it's just like ah finally someone could listen to me and understand what I was talking about where can we find you on social media and where can we find more information on Camp Brown Bear and can you donate to Camp Brown Bear so yes uh you can donate it to us um so on our website which is campbrownbearusa.org you can go to that and uh you can read about us in there there's pictures and stuff and i mean i did our website so it's not really that good but it's uh <laughs> enough <laughs> gets the point across and then there's a donate button that takes you to our like donation platform our funding platform and there you can set up a one-time uh donation or multiple like monthly or this new little tool that I think is really cool is it's a roundup for your credit card or debit card. You set it to a limit from $10 to $100 a month. And then anytime you buy something, they'll round it up, that charge up to the next dollar. And then it, you know, gets sent to us. I didn't and, even know uh, there was such a thing. I mean, I know they always ask me to I round up, it. but I didn't know that you could spe- specifically choose something. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't know about this either. This is a new tool that uh, we just started using. We haven't even really launched it yet. We've, we're kind of beta testing it within our board and stuff and friends of ours. Uh, we've been kind of talking about it and it is live on our website already because we don't have a whole lot of people that go on there anyways. So I thought it was kind of a safe place to put it so the rest of the board and stuff could find it. I love um, that idea because it's money that you're not even going to miss. But if you get enough of it, it's going to really make a difference for you. That is really cool. Definitely figured is if we could get 500 people uh at ten dollars that would pretty much put us about where we need to be per retreat 500 people at a hundred dollars then we cover our expenses for the year so i love that but that is really cool yeah thanks and then we do have a facebook uh page camp brown bear no usa in it and uh we got like instagram and stuff like that but really I put something on our webpage and then it populates Facebook, Instagram and everything else. So I, I don't know. I try to make it as simple as possible because I'm not. A no, tech, that helps. IT Social media person. is completely overwhelming. Yeah, right. <laughs> totally is. It could take you all day. Well, Steve, oh, yeah. my question for you now, the last question is what does America mean to you? Well, it means a lot of different things. It means you have such opportunity in this country. And, um, but you can still do whatever it is that you want to do. You have the freedom to come and go. You, you can travel where you want to travel. You can work where you want to work. I mean, the national anthem to me took a whole other meaning when I uh, lost my first teammate and saw that flag draped over him. And uh, super powerful. Anytime I hear national anthem, it means a lot more to me than what it did prior to 2003 when we lost him. People that would talk about our country and just how terrible it is. And obviously, they've never traveled out of the country. So I wish they would take some trips to some of these places where I've been able to enjoy most of my career, kind of see how they live and experience the things that. They, their people experience and then uh they'll probably have a different perspective on you know how terrible it is here in the united states 
love how my neighbors are here because I'm I'm out in rural America, and they're just like my friends up in Alaska. Everybody's here for each other. It's like if you need something, they'll just drop what they're doing and come over and help you, and you know, vice versa. Like it's kind of just the way it it was back in the you know decades ago, where uh, it'd be nice to see uh, where you could jump on your bike and ride down the street when you're like seven years old or whatever, and not worry about you know if I'm going to come home or not. I I think it's what America means to me. It's just you know the freedom to do what you want. I mean, every day I get to choose what I'm going to do, and there's so many places where you can't do that. Well, Steve, thank you very much for sharing your American story with us. Well, Tina, thanks for having me. It's been real fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country. 